ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Okay, welcome everyone. Um, thanks to our hosts at the LRB shop for setting this event up tonight. So my name's Daniel. I'm going to be chairing and talking about my own book and asking questions this evening. So apologies in advance that you're going to hear a bit too much from me, but I will try to limit it. Um, First of all, I wanted to just introduce our panellists a bit more. So furthest away from me is Theresa Thornhill, who, Theresa Thornhill, who is a writer and child protection lawyer. She first spent time in the Arab world in 1987, shortly after the beginning of the first Palestinian Intifada. She studied Arabic in East Jerusalem while there and researched interrogation methods used with Palestinian women detainees. In the early 1990s, after the second Gulf War, Teresa spent time with the Kurds in Iraq, producing her book Sweet Tea with Cardamom, A Journey Through Iraqi Kurdistan, which examines the treatment of Kurdish women by the regime of Saddam Hussein. In 2003 to 2006, she made a series of visits to Lebanon to research her next book, The Curtain Maker of Beirut, Conversations with the Lebanese, which deals with the diverse Lebanese sects trying to live side by side in the wake of their 15-year civil war. Her new book is Hara Hotel, a tale of Syrian refugees in Greece, uh, which we'll be talking about in more detail as we progress. Um, next to Teresa is Ziad Gandor. Ziad is originally from Syria and came to Europe as a refugee in 2015. Um, when he was stuck in the jungle camp in Calais, he started to work as an interpreter for journalists who were visiting the camp, and through that got interested in journalism as a career. Uh, when he finally made it over to the UK, he got involved in the refugee journalism mentoring scheme that is based at London College of Communication, which is somewhere that I teach sometimes. And uh, partly through that scheme and his own work, he's now become a journalist and he works for the BBC. Um, uh, and then immediately next to me is Marcia Gimmer, who is grassroots director of Women for Refugee Women. And as mentioned, there's more information about that that I urge you to um, come and look at after the talk is finished. Marcia has also been doing this, uh, working for that organisation for 10 years now. So it's got a, a kind of wealth of experience about the particular challenges facing uh, women who come to the UK as refugees. Um, and then as for myself... Um, I've been working as a journalist for about 10 years, and for the last five or six years, um, I've specialised in writing about refugees, migration, and borders in Europe. Um, and that's the subject we're here to discuss tonight. Um, I thought I would just start off by explaining a little bit about my own book, Lights in the Distance, and to try and set some general context that will inform um, the discussion we all have. Um, 
So as you might have noted, the title of this talk this evening is Stories from the Refugee Crisis, and I thought it was worth just reflecting briefly on what the refugee crisis is or was. Um, so it's most um, commonly used to describe this period in 2015 and 16, where there was a sharp rise in the number of people coming to Europe to claim asylum. And... Uh, a large proportion of those people came from Syria, but there were also people coming from Iraq, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Mali, other places in Western East Africa, Central Asia, South Asia, and so on. So that's certainly a big part of the picture. There was a, there was a rise in the number of refugees and other migrants arriving in Europe. But what I find, and what I've, I've tried to show in my journalism, is that's, that's a, a kind of limited part of the picture. And having it framed exclusively that way around gives the impression, rather, of Europe being this kind of pristine, unsullied continent that suddenly had all of these people from outside arrive and cause chaos. And that's false. Um, and one of the things that I've tried to argue in my own work is that really in 2015, um, we saw the culmination of two things. One was... Um, a series of different refugee crises caused by uprisings, wars, dictatorships in areas neighbouring Europe and areas a little bit far, further away than that. Uh, but it was also the culmination of what I tried to describe as a border crisis, so a crisis of European border policies uh, that were aimed at deterring or filtering out unwanted migrants. And that's a kind of much longer running process that has been underway over the last couple of decades, really. And to try and describe that as concisely as possible. I would say it's all to do with uh, you know, the growth of the EU, the attempt to preserve this, this privileged zone of free movement within the EU for EU citizens. Uh, and the trade-off for that has been the growth of an increasingly militarised and complex system of borders around the edges of Europe. So that's partly physical infrastructure, things like surveillance, fences, patrols, and so on. But it's also a very complex system of laws and treaties some of which are with the EU's neighbours. So for, for the last decade or so, the EU has been signing treaties with countries like Ukraine or Morocco or Libya when Colonel Gaddafi was in charge that offer kind of trade-off deals where they'd say, well, you, your citizens might get easier travel within the EU if you agree to take on the job of policing migrants and keeping them away from our, our shores. And then within Europe itself, um, in order to preserve that zone of free movement within the EU... So the idea is that within the Schengen zone, which covers most EU countries, although not Britain, uh, you don't have internal borders. The EU wanted to retain the ability to control the movement of asylum seekers. And there's a system, a treaty called the, the Dublin Treaty, the, the most important part of which is that it makes it the responsibility of the country where an asylum seeker first sets foot to process their asylum claim. So this is something that the countries in northwest Europe, like our own, the richer parts of Europe, pushed for very hard. Uh, their justification was, well, we get lots of um, people flying by plane into our country, so it's only fair this would balance it out and spread the burden among all these EU countries. But obviously that doesn't hold if you have large numbers of people reaching the EU by land or sea because they will arrive in the countries on the southern and eastern edges of the EU, which also tend to be the ones that are poorer, um, and less well equipped to accommodate and look after and, in fact, protect the lives of people who come to Europe in need. Um, so 
in my book, Lights in the Distance, what I've done is to follow a series of different people who've come to Europe to claim asylum, some of whom have been accepted as refugees, some of whom still years later are waiting for an answer to their application, some of whom were told they don't have a claim to refugee protection and should leave but are still in Europe. And by following those people long term over a period of, um, well, in some cases, five years, uh, what I've tried to do is build up a picture of that border crisis and that refugee crisis through the eyes of some of the people who've experienced it. Um, and I just wanted to draw out a couple of points from, from those stories now that I hope will, will kind of feed into what um, the other panellists have got to say about it as well. But one of the things that editors, um, you know, the people who would commission articles from me are very often keen on it's the kind of big currency in, in the journalism and publishing world is this idea of human stories. So um, I think that would be a familiar phrase to most people here. It's the kind of conventions of, say, news reporting, that you go for vivid individual experiences, you put the really dramatic stuff up front, uh, often based on this idea that that's what helps audiences identify with their subjects. If you hear that somebody, say, has been tortured and held captive in Libya, that the account of that experience will make you feel empathy with that person and push you to act in a a kind of progressive or caring way. Um, I think that's often not the case. I think often if you're constantly just seeing images and hearing stories of people presented that way around, it can be actually very alienating. Um, it can add to a sense of chaos or of people being you know, completely foreign to you, completely foreign to our own experiences. So how can we possibly deal with this big crisis that is happening on our borders or in the middle of our cities or, or wherever else? So I, I kind of tried to... Um, you know, still within the constraints of telling individual stories, find other ways of presenting people. So one of the main things that I did, because I had the luxury of time, was just to spend a lot of time with people and let the stories unfold in the way that, in the way that they did and let people talk to me in the way that they wanted to present themselves. So, for example, there's a, a man I know in Sicily who came from Mali as a refugee who I knew for about 18 months before he told me his story of what had happened to him in Libya. Um... And I think that means, you know, hopefully readers will get to know the person and not just the kind of trauma or the big dramatic experience um, that, that, that can kind of overwhelm all of those other things. Um, and the other really important part of it for me was that when I started to see the stories that way around and over the long, long term, you can see just how quickly all of these very definite-sounding categories, legal and political categories that we have that are used to describe people in those situations, just don't make sense from the point of view of an individual life. So genuine refugee or economic migrant, pretty much everybody that I write about in a book has been both at different points in their journey. Uh, whether someone is illegal or legal, you know, that depends on what laws are in operation at what point. It doesn't tell you what reasons people have for circumventing or breaking laws. Um, and for that reason, um, the final section of the book, I look a bit into my own family history because two of my grandparents came to the UK as refugees and one of them, my grandmother in particular, um, had... Uh, quite a big influence on me because she grew up in the same house as me. She was a refugee twice in her life. First of all, as a child refugee from the Russian Civil War and then again 20 years later from Nazi Germany, which is when she came to the UK. And I kind of pick through the stories that she passed on to me 
just to sort of see what, what can we learn from something that happened a century ago or half a century ago that could inform our understanding of what's happening to people now. And, and the really important thing I take from that is it's, it's about that, that the application of these kind of categories that I think um, we're at the moment locked in this process where governments are trying to restrict migration with ever harsher measures because of the way the world is changing. Um, and they're trying to impose these very definite distinctions on people where, where on the ground, in real life, they're often meaningless. And that that can have, first of all, has re- real, very damaging and deadly effects on people as they try to make journeys. Um, you know, the kind of ongoing disaster in the Mediterranean between Libya and Italy is one example of that. But it's also the way in which, I, I noticed in the news today, Germany said it was going to create holding centres for asylum seekers so it could more easily deport them um, when they were rejected. Well, that's something Britain proposed 15 years ago and has led to the growth of the largest system of immigration detention in Europe, which has no time limit on it. That you know, The filtering process is often presented as quick and clean and clinical, and actually it can take decades and completely crush a person's life. So it's not just the immediate threats of the journey uh, that are implied by this, this effort to distinguish the good from the bad and the deserving and the undeserving, but, but a kind of longer-term process that's happening all around us as well. And then the final implication of that, I think, is in the way it makes the rest of us think of the people that we encounter. So that just because on a piece of paper it might say that somebody meets the definition of a refugee or not, um, I think it's really important not to let our own perceptions and interactions with people be completely shaped by that because I think that's a sort of lesson from the 20th century that you know what starts off as these legal abstract categories can can completely shape the way that you um, interact with others and the kind of political solutions that you might then support based on that which themselves can be incredibly destructive so um, with that in mind, I'm going to pass over to Teresa now, who's going to tell you a bit about her book, and also to give you a bit of an update on the situation in the Aegean, on the Greek islands, where she visited recently. Thank you, Daniel. Um, <coughs> I was going to make the point, which Daniel's already really made, about the refugee crisis being um, a term used by the media, often in the past tense. It really hasn't finished. It's ongoing, and actually as we speak, the, the numbers are rising, certainly in um, Lesbos, where I went in March, I'm picking up, I'll, I'll tell you the figures later, because a friend just emailed me about how many people have arrived at the beginning of May, and it's a lot of people. But the focus of my book, Hara Hotel, is much narrower than, than what Dan has done, and actually the two issues kind of fit together quite nicely, because he's given you the broad picture. Um, my book is about the war in Syria and about the experiences of those uh, refugees fleeing Syria who came through Greece at a particular point in time. So I was there in, in um, April 2016 and again January 2017. My recent trip doesn't come into the book. Um, we all know a certain about, amount about the war. Some of us know more, some of us know less. Um, and I expect you're familiar with the figures, but I think perhaps it's worth going over them. The, the, the current figure... Okay, you just fiddle it off. Can I carry on? Yeah, yeah okay. So um, the figure I found today is that 465,000 uh, Syrians have been killed in the fighting and over a million injured. And obviously those are incredibly shocking figures. Um, UNHCR says that they've registered 5.5 million refugees um, from Syria, so who've actually left the country. A lot of refugees don't ever get registered, so I imagine the number is higher than that, or I don't know how much higher. 
and the UNHCR estimate that there's 6.6.5 million internally displaced persons within Syria, people who have to leave their homes. So if you, if you compare it to here, I mean, the, the Syrian population before the war was about 22 million. So it's over half the population have had to, at a minimum, lose their homes. And on my maths, it's about 8% of the population injured or killed. I mean, what's our population here? 66 million or something? It, it would be as if maybe 35 million of us had had to lose our homes. So it's really extraordinarily difficult for us as Brits to get our brains around, I think. Um, I think these figures can leave us as, as Westerners feeling impotent and also sometimes feeling unwilling to engage, like, ooh, it's so awful, I can't bear to think about it. Um, and I'll tell you how I got to sort of confront it a bit more close up. When the revolution in Syria began in 2011, um, I'd not been to the Middle East for five years, and although I had previously spoken Arabic, I wasn't using my Arabic, I was working as a child protection lawyer. I missed it very much, I love the language, but if you don't use a language, it starts to wither, doesn't it, in your brain. Um, I gradually became drawn into being very interested in the events in Syria, but it took a long time, and I would say really it was 2015 when somebody I worked with pointed out that she was worried that when she went on holiday to Kos, there would be so many refugees she wouldn't be able to have a holiday. That's when I really woke up and started, <laughs> I know it's kind of shameful, but that's the truth. That's when I started really looking at, at what was happening and watching the scenes on the TV of large numbers of people coming into Europe. And because I'd spent a lot of time in the Middle East when I was younger, I was, I had a sense of, my goodness, I think I know some of these people. I don't mean I knew them personally, but there was a familiarity and it made me feel I shouldn't be sitting on my butt, I should try and engage with this and, and maybe even do something to help. And that led, um, after quite a lot of reading, to me going to um, volunteer in a small camp um, in Greece in April 2016. So not that long ago, just over two years ago. Um, just to give you an idea of the numbers, um, although you may be aware of this, in 2014, it, UNHCR say something like 41,000 refugees arrived in Europe uh, via Greece by sea and in 2015 it was 856,000 so nearly a million 41% um, of them being Syrian so really really big numbers um, and the, the NGOs and UNHCR weren't able to cope with those numbers and as you probably know, a lot of European volunteers, mostly young but not all, and some Americans and Australians and so on, went to Greece to see what they could do to help. And a lot, there was a lot of creativity, and I'm not saying it was all positive, but a lot of volunteers um, put in a lot of hard work to supplement the, the work of the NGOs. Um, when I went in 2016, initially I was intending to go to Lesbos. I'd, I'd hooked up via Facebook with a um, a small Norwegian NGO called Northern Lights Aid. They were working on the beaches in Lesbos receiving boats, um, which was, that was all being done, as I understand it, by volunteers at that point. But just before I travelled, my little um, outfit moved up to Idomeni, which is on the border between northern Greece and the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, or Firon, as it's known, as the acronym. And the reason that they moved was that the situation in Greece um, was deteriorating, um, partly because early in 2016, several countries north of northern Greece, so in the Balkans, 
had either closed their borders or set quotas for how many refugees could come through on a daily basis, very small quotas, like, you know, we'll allow 500 through each day. And given the huge numbers, that was totally inadequate. On the 9th of March 2016, Firon, this next country to northern Greece, completely sealed its borders to refugees. So people with EU passports like me could go to and fro, and I did a lot, but refugees could not go through. And at that point, you probably know this, there was a massive build-up of people on the border and a spontaneous camp, not a planned camp, was formed in the village of Idomeni. The camp that I went to work in was uh, at Hara Hotel, which is um, the name I've given to the book. And it was a few kilometres from the big camp of Idomeni, much smaller, which to me made it it more interesting and kind of more manageable. There were about 600 people there. Um, It was a well, it calls itself a hotel. To, to my mind, it's more like a motel. It was about six rooms, a big restaurant and a petrol station and a little mini supermarket. And when I got there, there were tents all over the forecourt in the adjoining fields. And there were a few people, I guess the ones with money, a bit of money who arrived first and booked the hotel rooms. So everybody there was a refugee. And the Greek family, whose business it was, were pretty horrified, but kind of trying to hang in there and, and trying to keep the business going. I mean, they were, they were kind of angry, but... And a lot of my fellow volunteers, who were, say, an awful lot younger than me mostly, felt that they were evil bastards. I actually thought, you know, it must be quite hard if you're running a business and suddenly you've got 600 people who, who can't afford to pay or buy a drink in, sitting on every chair and in, in every space. So anyway, that was the situation I found myself in. And I did very um, sort of ordinary work for the two weeks I was there, um, handing out clothing which was being donated in big quantities um, from countries in Northern Europe, working with the kids. Um, and then eventually we were offered rice puddings by the, say, the children who knew that there were, the people were not getting enough to eat. I mean, they weren't starving, but they were being fed by a, uh, an anarchist outfit. And the, the food was, was, let's say, not very big in quantity. And some people said they had chronic stomachache. Anyway, Save the Children came to us and said, look, we can supply actually very big tubs of rice pudding. If you count the children, we'll bring you the right number of rice puddings every day. So we, we started this distribution system. It was all completely do-it-yourself and somewhat chaotic. And, you know, I'd never done aid work, neither had the people I was working with. But it was a sort of, I mean, if you like the challenge of being inventive and learning on the job, it was, it was actually very rewarding. Um, so my book... Um, is based on, it's got three strands, and the, um, the first strand is really an account of what it was like on a day-to-day basis um, at Hara Hotel for the short time I was there. And the con- it's, a lot of it is conversations. It's the conversations I had with people as I was you know, asking them what size T-shirt they wanted or whether this headscarf was suitable um, or you know, how many kids they had for the rice pudding distribution. Um, so it's very, it's very mundane. It's kind of nuts and bolts of life in that situation. Um, and then threaded through that, I've got the story of one individual, Syrian Kurd, whom I got to know at Hara, who um, spoke extremely good English, much better than my Arabic, and agreed to tell me his whole story. And he had left Syria um, at the point where he would have been drafted into the army in December 2011, so towards the end of the first year of the revolution, where... He was, I mean, he knew he couldn't be in a position where he'd be asked to shoot his own people, which is what would have happened if he'd stayed. So he, he, he fled to Turkey, but had some very difficult experiences in Turkey, was then deported back into Syria, which Turkey says it doesn't do, but it does sometimes. 
and he was sort of thrown right into the uh, an area of Syria where the war was raging all around him, and he had a very, very lucky escape and managed to eventually get back into Turkey and made his way to Greece. So he told me his story while we were there at Hara, and then we stayed in touch through the wonders of social media. And I later um, was told that he was in Austria, and I went to meet him there, and he had walked through um, Macedonia, through the mountains that summer in the heat with a couple of other guys. Well, started off with five of them, but three gave up, so two of them actually made it. And they walked up through, um, through Macedonia, but in hiding. If they'd been caught, they would have been taken back by the border guards, beaten up. And eventually he got to Austria. So his story runs through the book um, and has a, a, a kind of a happy ending in that he made it and he's all right now, he's in Austria. And then the third thread in the book um, is my attempt to understand the war and what's driving the war. And, you know, I'm not a historian or an international relations expert and it's not based on original research. It's really me trying to figure out by reading what it's all about. And it's aimed at people who aren't experts in the region, but who also would like to get a bit more of a grip on what it's about. And I, I've dealt with that in the book. But it's not, I can't, couldn't do a potted history of the war. It's more a series of questions, and the questions that particularly bugged me. So, for example, the first question is, how did what started as, as a spontaneous, um, non-violent uprising against the regime turn into a, um, an armed conflict? And then the second question is, how did what began as an internal conflict become an international war with so many different regional and international powers um, fighting proxy wars within Syria? And another question I've addressed is, um, to some extent, is why and how did the um, Syrian opposition and the Syrian fighting formations, which of course are very many and very varied, how did they come to be dominated by radical Islamists? Because that's another question that I found very interesting. so I've kind of tried to weave all that, or plat is quite a better word, into a, into a book, and, that, and that's the result. Can I briefly, am I going on too long? Briefly. One more minute, yeah. Okay. I just wanted to briefly mention the current situation in Lesbos when I was there in March. But the, really the worst problem, well, two things. When I was, just before I went to Greece in 2016, the EU did a deal with Turkey called the EU-Turkey Agreement, whereby they managed to the EU managed to massively reduce the flow of refugees to radically cut the numbers. I haven't got time to go into that in detail. But um, there were a lot of concerns on the part of human rights lawyers and activists about that deal. And actually, I think in, in human rights terms, it probably hasn't been as bad as it looked like it was going to be. But what has been really disastrous for the refugees who've arrived in the last two years is that Greece adopted this um, new regulation whereby instead of allowing people to move from the islands to Athens and then to settle wherever in uh, the mainland of Greece while their asylum claims have been considered, they decided to lock people into the islands. So there, there's been this big build-up of people, um, mainly in Lesbos but also in some of the smaller islands, who feel utterly trapped. They're often people who've been through, obviously, a lot of trauma or they wouldn't be on the move and they suddenly find themselves living in these particularly in Lesbos, in Moria camp, which has got really terrible conditions, but there are, there are other um, camps where people are made to live. They're, they're not locked in there. I mean, they, other than a few detainees, they could live elsewhere on the island, but they have no money, they're not allowed to work, and there's now quite a lot of hostility in Lesbos. It's quite unsafe. Particularly recently, there's been a big attack on a group of Afghan refugees in Mytilene in the last few weeks. Um, 
which makes people feel extremely unsafe. Um, just lastly, if I give you the figures for this month, I think it was 8,000 arrived by sea to um, Greece in the first four months of this year, so roughly 2,000 a month. And in the last, in the first week of May, it's been nearly 1,000. Um, I'm just trying to find my email from this friend who's there who, who told me that, oh, well, I can remember what the figures were. I mean, it's something like an average of about three boats every other day. And there was one day when 250 people arrived. I think it was about the 8th of May, around about the bank holiday weekend when we were all doing our bank holiday things. You imagine 250 people um, arriving and, and going into the situation. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's important to imagine is it must be such a relief if you get across the sea without drowning. And of course, there are still drownings. But you're then in this limbo in, in, in Lesbos or whichever island, which can go on for up to two years. I'll stop there. Okay. Um, thank you, Teresa. I think um, that's given us a very vivid sense of how... Um, you know, the, the kind of border crisis that I was trying to sketch out and a very complex war happening outside Europe have combined to create this very intense situation of need um, on the other side of the EU from, from where we are. Um, I think what's striking is that it's still going on as well, yet if you think about how it's now portrayed in the media, it's almost completely dropped out. So what I want to do now is to bring Marcio and Ziad into the conversation, and we're going to just maybe look at two things that arise from that. One is kind of how that relates to what's happening here in the UK and has been for a few years. And then also to ask maybe, is there something wrong with the kind of stories that we've been telling about this? What's been missing? Or is there a different way that we can think about this that might help us uh, kind of keep the awareness and, and, and the kind of interest up or actually contribute to changing the situation? So first of all, I wanted to ask Marchi, just if you could... Uh, just tell us a little bit about your work that you've done with Women for Refugee Women and what the kind of needs here are and how that might relate to that bigger picture. Yeah, so I work for a charity called Women for Refugee Women. We're a very small charity and we work in three ways. Uh, the first is to empower refugee women, uh, asylum-seeking women who, who are here in the UK. Um, second, we, to raise awareness about what is happening to them and their lives in the UK. And the third is to lobby government for change. Um, so as the grassroots director, my work really focuses on empowering uh, asylum-seeking women. And currently, um, in well, our office, we're based in London, and we have a drop-in where over 100 women every Monday come to to you know to learn some English yoga classes uh, but most importantly to kind of gain the tools of empowering themselves and understanding what their journey has been and how to contextualize it in the wider context of the refugee crisis or the immigration policy in the UK um, and then I'll talk a bit more uh, a bit later on about um, the, how we do that, how do, how do we empower uh, refugee women. But I just want to tie this whole um, thing, that some of the journeys, because I have worked in Calais as well as uh, I went to Lesbos and Hamburg as well. So I have seen the situations of some of the uh, refugee women who, who end up in these camps. And I just want to talk about um, briefly two of the women that I met um, 
And so I just want to start with talking ab- about the African women who, who make these journeys, and mostly these African women from Eritrea, Ethiopia, um, and West African countries, uh, they are mainly single women who don't, whose positions are different in the way that uh, many Syrian and Afghan women travel with their family. They have husbands, children, and so forth, and have um, those some sort of protection. Whereas these women traveling by themselves um, across Africa and the Mediterranean do not have those protections, and so they are more vulnerable. Uh, on their journeys to sexual violence, abuse, trafficking. Um, so um, I'm going to st- start talking about Gannet, uh, who I met in Lesbos. And she she was actually trafficked from Ethiopia. And she, she uh, was a domestic servant in Beirut, um, in Lebanon. And because of the war in Syria and the instability that has caused that whole region... Um, she was then further trafficked across um, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey. She walked most of the journey with other people, and now she is stuck in Lesbos. And when I spoke to her, she, you know, this war had come in um, between Turkey and the EU-Turkey deal has come in, and therefore it meant that she could not, not travel further along the route to safety. And so this woman has experienced so much trauma uh, on her journey, uh, also in Beirut when she was working as domestic servant. But her journey, she's just stuck and there's no solution to to her problem. Another person I met uh, called Helen, I met her in... um, I actually didn't meet her in Calais, but she she was... um, She had got here... Uh, she had uh, managed to get here uh, hiding in, in the lorry and her friends told me about her. She was actually pregnant when she she got in the, uh, hid in the lorry. She came from Eritrea. She made the whole journey through Sudan, through the deserts of Libya, across uh, the horrific Mediterranean Sea and had managed to come to the UK and she was actually pregnant on you know hiding in the lorry from Calais to to England and unfortunately she had a miscarriage um, during that time um, and so uh, and her her kind of trauma didn't end there because then a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. She, she was uh, put in an asylum system that she couldn't really navigate through. Um, and not only that, but she, she had no support. And she was a bit dumbstruck because she was like, we have so much help. We have so many English people coming to Calais to give us toiletries, clothes, uh, all this stuff. But when she came to the UK, there was no one who could support her. Um, so just moving on to like some of the challenges that refugee and asylum-seeking women face in the UK, um, I, I call them the three Ds. So the first one is decision making. So the the immigration system or asylum process that we have is just completely disorganized and it is just it does not make sense anymore. So therefore many women who apply for asylum on the first application are given the wrong decision, which is that they are refused. Uh, and this leads to subsequent problems whereby uh, all support is withdrawn from them, so they become destitute. Um, and then this means also that they have no housing, no, no support, no money. Um, and then it, this also could lead to the next D, which is detention. And uh, Daniel, you touched on it, whereby the UK has the largest detention uh, system in Europe and um, the detention centre particularly that affects women is Yarlswood Detention Centre, where 400 women are are held currently um, and there's no time limit. Um, So, you know, it is really, really difficult for anyone, any sane person to navigate through the, uh, the asylum process that we have in this country. And we need to do, you know, a, like an overhaul of the system so that we have uh, a system whereby our individuals are treated humanely with dignity and provided that the safety that they need. Okay. Thank you much. I just want to to introduce another aspect to this now, which is I think we've heard quite a bit about the the, the needs people have and the the kind of um, the risks they're under and the wider political factors that that contribute to that. Um, but then there's a kind of third thing that comes in, which is often journalists. You know, so you have a situation like Calais, where there's all of these people who've, who've suffered these long, gone through these long, complex, often quite traumatic journeys to reach there. And then you have the world's media, lots of UK media arriving and saying, well, we want your stories. We want to tell other people about it. And I think that that's the point at which it can really um, help uh, our understanding of what's going on and help meet some, of those, meet some of those needs that March identified, or it can totally distort it and cause more damage. So I just wanted to ask Diad, first of all, like... You said it was through meeting journalists that you know you were helping translate for and, and working with in Calais that kind of was your beginning of your path into the media. I just want, wondered what were your kind of impressions of how they were approaching you and other people in Calais at that time. Um, so yeah, in uh, Calais, in, I was in Calais in 2015 in August, and that's where I met uh, many journalists at that time. And uh, I, uh, I would say this is where I started to like think about journalism, uh, like, and 
appreciate what it does uh, and how uh, it can have an impact like on people. Uh, I think it's empowering when uh, you let people uh, tell their stories and it's even like more empowering if people can even write their own stories. So when I came to the UK in uh, uh, like after 40 days from Calais, I was uh, accepted on this course, Refugee in Journalism project at London uh, College of Communication, where I learned about journalism for uh, for a year, and that's where I met so many like journalists here in the UK, and they introduced me to uh, like some of them gave me work experience. Then that led to work opportunities, and I think after a year of that, uh, I started working in journalism. My first work was uh, for Kyo Films, where I worked uh, as a translator on uh, uh, the documentary Exodus, which tells the refugee stories, uh, why do they leave and how do they make it here. And it uh, ended up winning two BAFTAs, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, uh, I started working for the BBC, uh, also in documentaries for the Arabic service. And I've been there for, uh, in 10 days' time, it would be a year. And <laughs> it's really great. Uh, and bef- uh, three months ago, uh, so when I was in Calais in 2015, I met uh, Sally Hayden, who was ro- uh, reporting on refugees. Uh, and she interviewed me, but then we kept in touch. She was the one who suggested I should apply for the Refugee and Journalism Project, and I got accepted. And then uh, six months ago, we worked together on a report. It's like, it's like a long investigation about uh, Syrian refugees who are deciding to go back home. And we investigated three points. Uh, why do they come? Why do they decide to go back home? How do they do it? And what happens when they're home under these circumstances? And that report uh, was published by the Irish Times. It was long-listed for uh, Amnesty uh, uh, Refugee Reporting uh, Award and uh, shortlisted for uh, One World Media, which will take place on the 18th of June. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Um, and, I mean, did you when, when you were in Calais, did you have any sense of how the refugees in Calais were being portrayed by the media back in Britain at that point? I didn't really have access to newspapers and reports, but I could see firsthand that the presence of media would keep the authorities behaving, you know. <laughs> so you kind of saw the positive effect that that, that Yes, and that's just a little effect, but uh, I can sense, like, when people know that I'm Syrian, they know the story of Syria and what happened, and they can relate to me, I think, because of the media and the journalists who who investigated it and came up with books and reports and documentaries about the whole issue and made people informed. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, Marcia, if you've got anything to add on that. Like, are there stories that are getting missed or things that yeah, you think, think could be done differently? I think it's really problematic just to paint refugees as victims. Um, because many of them are survivors and many of them have their own lives. They're not just refugees, they are human beings with um, so many aspirations. And uh, at Women for Refugee Women, we want refugee women to tell their own stories in their own words. 
and we have um, we've been doing this um, drama project um, where um, we meet once a week at the South Bank, and about twenty women participate. And they are learning to kind of create, to use creative methods of uh, poetry, uh, dance, and drama, really to create their own narratives and their own stories. I think uh, a lot of the time, the problem about uh, journalists going into a situation and telling other people's story is that it's through a prism of their own, the the journalist or you know the, the white journalist experience and so um i think they they opportunities are missed and it's really important that we empower uh refugees to tell their own stories yeah i mean that's just making me think about some of the decisions i made for my own book because i think originally i thought oh no i should be completely out of it and it should you know i should do lots of thorough research and then tell everything in the third person and mm. Um, so that I'm sort of out of the picture and actually I changed my mind halfway through writing it and ditched what I had because I thought in a way I can't pretend it's not coming through me so I should show the readers how I encountered the things and then try to find ways to negotiate with the people that I was writing about that would allow where possible people to take control of how the story was being told so one example of that is this um, woman uh, from Iraq called Zainab who is now in the UK but spent... um, five months stuck in Calais with her three children who were all under 10 years old at the time. Mm. And when I first met her, um, she was learning English, but it wasn't particularly fluent. And so I thought, well, rather than do this, I suggested, why don't I leave you my dictaphone and you just tell the story you want to tell. Mm. And then I'll, I'll, tra- I'll have that translated by an Arabic-speaking friend and then I'll, I will work with that. And it, it, that was really useful for me because it allowed me to see which bits she wanted to emphasise. Yeah. So, you know, bits that I would have gone in with my, you know, journalist from the UK mind and gone for these questions actually turned out some of them were important, but other ones, it wasn't that at all. And it was other bits of the experience um, I wouldn't have seen. I just wanted, Teresa, if you had anything to contribute to that or the the idea of people's creativity (laughs) coming into it. I wonder if you'd seen that in... Well, the creativity is just everywhere. And then the resilience. I mean, you can't really be amongst refugees and not be very deeply impressed by their resilience actually. Mm. I mean, that's my experience you know, in places I've been to but I thought in your book um, if I may say Daniel I thought that worked very well I liked the way you dealt with Zainab and the way you accepted that she wasn't quite ready to talk and you were male and she didn't know you very well so you left her the dictaphone I thought that was I thought that was a stroke of genius actually and it, it I also you know over the years have come to the conclusion it's much better to be in a book as a real person because not, not with a lot of detail but everything we write about as, as Europeans writing about, I mean, in my case, about the Arab world, we're bringing all our prejudices. So it's better to be there and, you know, talk about it from time to time and not, not pretend that one is this sort of neutral observer because there's no such thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge difference between putting yourself into a book in a way that you're talking over your subjects or kind of showing off to the reader mm-hmm. and just doing it so the reader can see the, the viewpoint from which you're observing what's yeah. happening. And also, it's not. I mean, it's not just prejudices you bring to it. It's um, it's romance, knowledge, well. and experience. And, and I mean, yeah. like what Ziad was just explaining is showing a way in which, you know, his there aren't many journalists working in the UK who are also refugees who've come from Syria to Europe. But because of what you were bringing to that piece that you worked on with Sally, you were able to open up a kind of whole new area of experience that Syrians were having that most other journalists wouldn't be able to get near because you two were able to actually get back in 
to what was happening in Syria. Yeah, yeah, it was a cl- uh, great collaboration between us both. Uh, I had like uh, the access and. Uh, she had the journalistic experience because I'm not as experienced as she, as she is. And we ended up going to Germany, to Ireland, and she went to Syria because I, I, it would be problematic for me to go to Syria and to Sudan. And our report was published in, uh, in English, in Arabic, and in, Germany, in German. Mm. Okay, so I'm just mindful of time. That I know there's lots more we've, <laughs> we've got to discuss, but I'd really like to open it up to other people and, and have some questions. And, um, see what you have to say really so do we have any uh, question down at the front there's a microphone coming so just thanks very much great conversation um i wanted to ask sort of any of you all of you a bit more about refugees when they get i mean you said teresa that um the main character in your book main the main person who's, who's threaded through it had got to Austria and he was all right and I was thinking but there's a far right on the rise in Austria does that mean he's all right I've done a little bit of work with refugees myself here very badly actually I feel like I'm really bad at it and it's very interesting listening to you all and the thing that has struck me is that all the refugees I've worked with are all sent to Newham and when I've had to speak to Newham council to try and help them out Newham Council is on its knees and, and seems to be overwhelmed by the number of people who are coming there and anyway is a borough with, that's struggling financially. Um, and I'd just like to know a bit more from all of you, a bit more about not so much just the detention centres, which are obviously horrific, Yarlswood is just horrific, but those who appear to be kind of okay... But, you know, some of the refugees I work with have been given a council flat, but then their bills weren't being paid. So suddenly they haven't got water, they haven't got electricity, and they're sort of locked in these flats without any help. But people seem to think they're all right because they've got their own place, but, mm-hmm. but they're not really. So I'd just like to hear a bit more about that. Thanks. I mean, in relation to Juan, the guy in my book, <clears throat> when I say he's all right, he doesn't communicate with me very often. I mean, he does from time to time, and he usually communicates that things are okay. You know, he's young. He's able-bodied, he's highly, highly intelligent, he's got about four or five languages, like he's, he's picked up German very quickly. So there's all right and all right, right. isn't there? Yeah. And I mean, I do wonder, yeah. you know, yeah. I know some things about him, like his mother's in a very bad situation, she's actually in Iraqi Kurdistan, and I worry, but I, so I only know a limited amount. I think in terms of the situation here, I mean, what I know from doing some voluntary work with refugees here is, is about the dispersal system. So as I understand it, people are dispersed around the UK and in Bristol, where I've done work with refugees, um, Bristol seems to be a bit of a mecca, like people who've been sent to Swansea or even up north decide that actually Bristol's going to be better and they, they make a beeline for Bristol. And there is a terrible shortage of accommodation, so some of the young guys, particularly young Sudanese, uh, in a couple of summers ago, a lot of them were sleeping in parks. So obviously it's very, very difficult, but I think there's a lot of refugee organisations in Bristol and there's a sense of community and that's perhaps more important, and certainly in the summer, maybe not in the winter, then, you know, it's better than being isolated in some town up north where they don't feel, or in the part of Wales where they don't feel welcome, they don't have community. But, I mean, you, you two probably know yeah, much more I about that. wherever you are, I mean, some places are much easier for uh, refugees to kind of try to build their lives back up, um, London being one, but... 
in regards to the the challenges, the huge challenges that they face, you know, not enough is being done to kind of look at the traumas um, these people have gone through, and you know, the rehabilitation process that that needs to take place. Um, and not only that, but I feel that. Um, yeah, communities, as in, like the organisation we have, the drop-in, the English classes are really important in integration and belonging. But many of the women that I work with across the country um, do face hate crimes. You know that has uh, there is a rise in hate crime, especially after Brexit. And what you have is, you know, Brexit was all about blaming immigrants, uh, asylum seekers, refugees, the others, for the problems of the UK. But those problems that you talked about is because of austerity, it's not because of uh, immigrants coming to the UK. Yeah. Um, I've got something I want to say, but I might hold on to it for now. Do we have any more any more questions? Maybe if we take two, a pair of questions, the one there and one over here. Hi, thanks. That was really great. Um, the question about like how you write people's stories, I think, is really interesting and really difficult because I think the problem with so much of the reporting is that it turns into this kind of like obsession with trauma and the kind of really, really dramatic moments, like the photo of people getting off the boats or the kind of moments of conflict and stuff. But the thing that you don't see is the kind of like interminable boredom of like not being able to work and going through the systems, going to collect like whatever kind of asylum support you're getting if you're getting any. And so I wondered like how you'd manage to kind of capture not only these kind of crisis moments, but also just the kind of sheer weight of the bureaucracy that you have to live under and kind of survive through and, and kind of make that compelling for a reader who might not necessarily kind of care, with, care that much for or, or identify with. Yeah. I was just wondering, um, particularly you, well, the ones who've been out in the field for quite a long time, it's very difficult for those of us who are concerned about it. There's so much to be concerned about. Where to press the button, where to put the effort when we have some time to do that? For example, should we be focusing on the refugee crisis of the borders and policy of the European state. Should, should that be where we're putting attention? Or should we, we be really having a go at the Home Office now, which seems to be a ripe context right now to change that? Have you got any comments about that? Maybe particularly down in that show, so. I would say you, you, you put your energy wherever depending on what your skills are and whether you can travel or can't travel, there's massive you can do here without leaving your home. Mm-hmm. Probably just you know, your computer, there's probably quite a lot you can do. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if you're moved to travel, then there's... I mean, there, I found some amazing organisations working in Lesbos. Always they need money and they need volunteers and mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of good work being done. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't think it's all negative. I mean, the, being a refugee waiting for a decision in Lesbos is pretty hellish, but... It, there are certain projects which are quite inspired where I think people are having positive experiences. Um, not everybody gets access to them, but those who do. Mm. There's one community centre I went to in Lesbos a few times where, I mean, the atmosphere was, was wonderful. And, okay, people go back to this hellish Moria camp in the evening. It's not like their lives are okay, but they do get a break during the day when they're with 
they're able to use their own languages, they get well fed, they get stimulating activities. So I mean, it's, I think it's not all bad, and I think one fits into it where one wants to, and where, where you feel, um, you know, it has to be somewhat perhaps rewarding to you as well, something that you're going to find satisfying to do, and where you've got the skills to contribute. Yeah. Have a go at the home office. <laughs> 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 I'll say, have a go at the home office. Write to your MP. You know, yeah. let make make yeah. them accountable for yeah, my MP the was, whole. Was on the route, so I've been to see her. Oh, great! <laughs> Keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I vote her out. <laughs> um, yeah, you only need another three hundred or so people, don't you? To get well, what I was going to say is actually, I think also one thing I've learned from from working on this subject over quite a wide geographical area is like you see the same things happening again and again, and like you you see that the patterns are very similar where they are. So this kind of idea of the, the, the kind of isolation that Marcha was describing um, in among some of the people that she's dealt with, or the contribution about Newham and people being stuck in flats there has got parallels with the way people are isolated or not in Lesbos and other places. And I think um, I think one of the reasons it's kind of dropped out of our imaginations a bit in Britain is because of Brexit and people thinking, well, we're kind of leaving all of that behind now. And I would say that's absolutely not the case. First of all, Britain is going to continue contributing to whatever the EU is trying to do in Africa and the Middle East to keep migrants it doesn't want away because Britain knows it will benefit from that as well. And secondly, the way that the processes are working in the UK is very, very similar. So just for an example of that, in the last few months, I've been working on a story about an immigration case in Britain. Um, I don't know if people remember a story just before Christmas about a boxer who had fought for England six times and then was put in detention in the Home Office for trying to deport him to Nigeria, which is a country he hadn't seen since childhood. So I went back to him and did a long story about how he ended up in that situation. And I mean, some of the, the particular rules were different, but it was the same. It's, it's this idea that, that we've got these very complex systems to filter people. You know, that the, the way our societies are organised, which is largely in the, in the interests of, of capital, basically. It's trying, to, it's trying to encourage free movement of capital, goods, trade, certain approved categories of people, but retain, retain the right to filter out the ones that you don't want for, for a variety of reasons. And that, that, that's the system that arches over all of this. So whichever bit you, can, you engage with, you're going to be learning about how the rest of it works. Um, and then just, just to follow on to, from that to answer the question about how do you kind of uh, render those that isolation or the kind of limbo that people are in. I mean, I can't say there is a right way to do it. I can tell you how I tried to do it, which is, I mean, it's partly just, like I was saying, let, letting the stories unfold as they do because you just learn more about someone's life. And, you know, if you start with the, the experience of being tortured in Libya or... Um, or anything else similar, then what they're getting served for lunch in their reception centre has, you know, seems less relevant. But it's if you tell it a different way round, you can work in all of those details. I mean, the other thing is, I think it actually relates to this point where we all see these huge historical events happening, and we're sort of part of them, but we're also spectators to them at the same time. And now that can it can make you feel quite powerless that I'm just watching this happen. Where do I start? But I, I mean, I don't know if. Ziad may have a different perspective on this because he's been through a journey like this but what I found was that that's the same for a lot of the people who are, who are being displaced you know there are times when they're going through very 
intense experiences and a lot of times where actually they're literally watching it happen on TV like the rest of us. So um, I Caesar, the, the guy from Mali that I mentioned earlier, um, it, in, in the narrative of the book, the way that I decided to describe that moment in autumn 2015 when suddenly everybody had kind of come through the Balkans and were arriving in the train station in Budapest was I was in Sicily at that point and I'd gone round to his house and we were watching France 24 on the television in his house and he just looked at me and was like you see the cameras go there now and they don't come here because it's only black people arriving in Sicily you know and I just thought that was that revealed so much more to me about people's experiences of what was happening, the way that I was being determined by you know the media industry, the different kind of value that was being assigned to people's experiences based on where they were from. So, I mean, I mean, it, I could have put it in a much simpler way, which is just be a journalist and observe things and, <laughs> and write about it. But that's a less fun answer I suppose um, can we ask Ziad what he thinks about yeah. this question of, your question about, about where to put energy in terms of helping or campaigning um, from my personal view I would say at the borders because those people are most more vulnerable than people who already are here but that's my personal view so. and they need more support I would say Okay, so we're, we're nearly done for time. I think we take one more question if somebody's prepared to be very quick. Okay, I think your hand up went just first. Uh, thank you for a great panel. I've just spent the last year in eastern Sicily working with underage immigrants and becoming a guardian to some of them, taking them through the legal system. Um, and they're mainly men, but something I've learned a lot about is the world of global sexual trafficking. And the women who I've encountered there are highly protected and they're given amnesty. They're given a much better deal, it seems, at first than the ones in Britain who aren't treated as people who, who really need help. They're treated as people that need to be deported. Um, and yet at the same time, they are so protected um, that they cannot continue their lives. So they're just kept in centres. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with this category of person. It, it exposes the non-binary nature of, say, Europe and, and Africa. I mean, it, it's <coughs> completely international. It's a global network. Um, the border that Ziad is talking about is everywhere um, because these women are being shipped all around the world. Um, and and what, we can do, what we can do for these women, how we can combat such an enormous global network... Um, okay, there's a grassroots level, but, but how do you break such a network? What are the steps one can take? Um, there seem to be so many interests at play <coughs> that um, it's, it's, sort of, um, it's a perennial problem, slavery, and it's one of the hardest to talk about, and it's one of the hardest to get the victims to talk through because they are victims, and they may be survivors, but if their faces can't be seen, then we're really stuck. Anybody else wants to respond to that? Sure, no. Uh, well, I, I mean, given that Eastern Sicily is somewhere that I did quite a lot of work for the book as well, so I probably encountered similar things there. I mean, yeah, I think the it goes back to what Marchi was saying earlier as well about people, the women, particularly women coming from Africa, being much more isolated and <laughs> hidden away for different reasons, either, either because they've been trafficked or simply because they're vulnerable and can't go about 
their lives in the way that uh, men in similar situations could. Um, I mean, my, I can't really give you a kind of comprehensive answer to that, but uh, from what I've observed, my contribution to that would be that the, the kind of current discourse uh, surrounding the idea of slavery is both drawing attention to what's going on, but it's also being used by politicians to push forward kind of policies that actually have border control and immigration yeah. control as their intent, mm -hmm. and that those things can compound the danger that those people are in. So I know, I know from... Um, I, th I think, you know, in Britain that's been a tension within what the Home Office did under Theresa May where she made modern-day slavery a big sort of flagship policy but actually the result of increased raids was some of the women, the trafficked women being deported because they were then handed over to the Home Office. Mm. Um, I, I yeah. can maybe add to that where, where, you know, we can use the platforms that exist already. Like, there's been a huge interest you know, with the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns about sexual harassment and violence against women. But those narratives can't just be about Hollywood stars. They have to include uh, refugee women, the most marginalised women in our society. And that's something that I have been trying to do in terms of uh, engaging, you know, uh, the Me Too and Time's Up uh, to include or give platform to these other stories <laughs> which are about um, violence against women. Um, and one of the things actually that, that has come up recently to do with the hostile environment policy where we now have a situation migrant and uh, those with insecure status in the UK are unable to report violence. Uh, they are unable to report rape, sexual harassment because of fear of uh, deportation. Uh, because basically the whole hostile environment has given the police uh, a license just to kind of pass information to uh, immig um, immigration enforcement. So that, like, you know, we, we need to change that. Women have to feel safe regardless of where they come from or what kind of paper that they have. They need to feel safe and need to be protected. So okay. I don't know if that answers anything. But. Well, I, feel, I think for me maybe that just ties back into just a, a reframing of the, the, whole, the whole question surrounding this subject, which is that like what I was saying at the start about the, all, all of these different kind of terms and categories that get thrown around, that they can really warp your thinking. Um, and perhaps what it, you know, the way that I think it needs to be recentered is just on the question of needs. And not only needs, because if you only talk about people in terms of needs, it kind of casts them as victims and people are just waiting for things to be handed to them. But also, you know, like wants and desires. Like, you know, if you're forced into displacement, you don't stop being a human being who wants things. And the un better understanding of that, to me, is a better way of understanding well, why are people choosing to take the particular journeys they do, <coughs> why do people keep going, you know, why, and, and so on. So yeah. I, I think that's really worth focusing on. Um, and also I know that we've been through a lot of different, quite complex information this evening, and it can feel very overwhelming, and it can produce that idea of, well, I can't fix this, what, what should I be doing? I mean, what I would just add to that is you don't have to necessarily do anything I think just know what's happening is is an important step so
So, but you can do small things like write to your MP. Sorry, <laughs> I am a true campaigner. <laughs> write to your MP about these issues. You know, just do the small things. There are there are some you know organisations that you can support, whether it's through donation or just giving up your time to volunteer. There are refugees here, right at your doorstep, who need your help. So. I mean, I would totally second that. I think you know there is a lot that we can do, and it can be on a small scale. Yeah. And for me, one of the important things is befriending. There are schemes, there are certainly schemes in Bristol, and I'm sure there are in London as well, where um, people who've got English as a first language befriend a refugee who's who's learning English, and just meeting up once a week for a cup of tea and talking in English is actually a huge contribution. It makes a big difference. Yes. It breaks through the, some of the isolation that Laura was talking about. And it's so basic to learn the language of the country that you've got to grapple with for the next however long. Mm. If, you, if you haven't got the language, then you're, you're much more isolated and you're much more, I think, overwhelmed, aren't you? Well, you two got, I mean, you've got fantastic English, but, but you probably remember before you, before you had that English. It's, it's very, very difficult. And it's a very small but simple. I mean, my sort of dream is that everybody would say that they would do that once a week for one hour with somebody who needs to learn English, and it would just make our whole community so much all over the country is so much better. Yeah, okay, so I think we're, our time is about up. Um, but, I mean, do feel free to come and speak to us and continue the conversation if you'd like. Um, uh, I think that last point about, you know, keeping talking, doing things, I, that, that something like what Teresa suggests or what Marty has suggested or the kind of journalism that Ziad was describing. All of this stuff isn't just about helping like people who are different from you, who are separate from you. These are all things that actually benefit all of us and build stronger communities. And um, I think that's something we can maybe take away from this. So um, just remains for me to thank our panellists um, for their excellent contributions. Um, and thank you to all of you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be fine. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.